0: Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Good day to you. This is Father Bill Watson, Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Today we are interviewing Jesuit Father Gregory D. Vance, S.J., of the Society of Jesus. Father Vance is a Jesuit from the Western Province of the Society of Jesus. We both entered a number of years ago from the former Oregon Province of the Society of Jesus. Father Vance has been with the Society for 34 years. He's been a priest for 21 years. Currently, he is chaplain to Bishop Kelly High School in Boise, Idaho. He is also the diocesan exorcist, and we're going to spend two of our sections of our podcast today, speaking with him about his work as an exorcist. But he's also got a great educational background. He's got a BA in English and Philosophy from Gonzaga, a Master of Divinity from Western Jesuit School of Theology and a Master's in Educational Leadership from the University of Montana. He served as Director of Adult Formation and Teacher of English at Bellarmine High School, our Jesuit high school in Tacoma, Washington. He was President of Seattle Prep School, Matteo Ricci College, Form One, Father Vance moved on from there to be superior of the Jesuit community at St. Francis Xavier Parish in Missoula, Montana, and associate pastor. And then superior of the Jesuit community and teacher of English and a member of the board of directors of Gonzaga Prep in Spokane, my old alma mater. And then a teacher of English and a member of the board of directors for the Catholic schools of Fairbanks, where he lived pretty much by himself. After his time in Bellarmine, he became the campus minister for retreats at the Caruso Catholic Center at USC in Los Angeles, California. And now, like I said at the beginning, he's chaplain to Bishop Kelly High School, spiritual director for clergy, and a diocesan exorcist. In this first section, we're going to go over his educational background. He's got a great interest in English. One of his special lifelong interests, he said, is an obsession with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien which has in turn led him to explore the intersection between mythology and spirituality. He's also very interested in the portrayal of spirituality and the Catholic Church in popular culture and made this the theme of a series of talks he gave at the Spokane, Washington Novena of Grace. So I'd like to uh, welcome Father Greg Vance of the Society of Jesus. Greg, I'm very happy that you're able to join us this morning from Boise, Idaho. Great. It's great to be with you, Father Bill. It's been a while since we've seen each other physically in presence uh, of each other, but uh, we both entered the former Oregon province of the Society of Jesus. Now we are part of Jesuits West.
1: That's right.
0: So um, I wanted to start with uh, your vocational focus and your ministerial focus in the first part of your priesthood. And a lot of it was focused on high school ministry and pastoral ministry. Right. What what event uh, or uh, uh, maybe starting with your kind of vocation, what event or spiritual religious experiences were most formative for you in your decision, first of all, to apply for religious life in the Society of Jesus?
1: Great question. I you know, and all of us have a vocation story. And and I, I think mine goes back just to my adolescence. I grew up in Missoula, Montana. Great. Uh, I came to know the Jesuits not through schools, which is kind of a normal pattern, but through a parish, actually, St. Francis Xavier Parish in Missoula. And uh, I, I can just remember as an adolescent and kind of a troubled adolescent at that and mixed up about what what life was all about, seeing a couple of things. Um, I saw some recently ordained priests, ordained Jesuit priests who came through the parish and they were very appealing. They were very friendly. They always seemed to have time for for youth in their lives. And I and I saw some older Jesuits, too, and some Jesuits kind of on the verge of their own retirement. And they were kind. And the first time I ever went to face-to-face confession was with a Jesuit there in Missoula. Nice. And, you know, those are just formative experiences that kind of led me to want to be like them. I don't remember in my boyhood, uh, you know, ever feeling like I wanted to be a priest, but I do remember the question occurring to me since my earliest days, how does someone get to do that? How does someone get to stand behind the altar and say mass? I mean, what, what is that all about? So I can remember a curiosity about that in, from my earliest days. And then I think the, the other thing that I would say and answer to that question is just that, you know, the reputation of the Jesuits um, also attracted me. And I think the re- reputation of uh, intellectual uh, life the reputation of kind of elitism. I mean, I, you know, that moderates once you join the society and you see that right. we're just regular folks like anybody else. But at least right. at that point in my life, um, that was uh, that was a part of what I desired. And uh, I was deferred the first time that I applied to the Jesuits. Not rejected, but deferred. And um, I, I was a freshman in college at the University of Montana. Okay. And the suggestion was that maybe I come to Gonzaga and that the society could Get to know me a little bit better before I entered, but I, I also heard behind that grow up a little bit. And so I, I bought a motorcycle <laughs> and I traveled the country, mostly staying in the Southwest for the next year. It took a kind of a gap year they would call it today. And uh, by the end of that, I was ready to uh, to enter the Jesuits and was accepted immediately after that. So nice. You,
0: yeah. That year was.
1: That year would have been 1985, and I entered in August of '86.
0: Was there any personal spiritual revelation that happened to you apart from just your kind of casual encounter with Jesuits and a desire to kind of follow the, follow that lifestyle, uh, vocational style?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, all those years later, I mean, you look back on your experiences and you can identify spiritual movements. I don't think I could have identified it at, at the time. You know, I, I was looking for meaning. I really, really was looking for meaning in my life and significance and to do something that needed doing and to do something that was important. And those are just experiences that I still have in my own spiritual life that I think God was really working with me. So, you know, from with the um, Jesuit spirituality language, we would call those desires, great desires and the desire to to do something great. I definitely had that.
0: Nice. Nice. I, uh. Um, entered uh, after high school Gonzaga Prep, not Gonzaga University, and uh, my experience was a desire to be a missionary in Africa. I was watching television, and I saw kids on a Peace Corps commercial, and I said, that's what I want to do, and I stayed up all night and realized that I didn't want to do that for two years or one year, but for my whole life, and I thought, oh, I'll be a missionary. When you entered the Jesuits, did did you focus on priesthood, or was it more of a pastoral focus, because I had no focus at all on priesthood until actually I had to apply for theology. That's when s- suddenly priesthood came in, and the desire for me for priesthood was when I was working in pastoral ministry at, a, at one of our high schools, running retreats, and I thought, gee, I really feel I want to be able to hear these people's confessions and give them hope. Yeah. So the, the sacrament for
1: me was reconciliation, not so much liturgy. Well, Father Bill, as you know, the the tradition of the Jesuits is to enter kind of indifferent as to whether or not you become a priest or a brother. Right. And, uh, you know, that was taught to us when we first entered the novitiate too. And so I, I have a similar experience to you. Priesthood wasn't the issue for me. Being a Jesuit was the issue for me. And I think community, community life. And, uh, you know, my, my two novitiate classmates who are still with us are, uh, Father Tom Lamana, the, the director at Gonzaga University and, uh, nice. Father Dave Anderson there with you at Seattle University. Okay. And then the judgment who's a year ahead of us, who's all by himself now in his class, whom we've adopted is Father J.K. Adams. Nice. So those are some of my dearest friends. They've known me since the day I walked through the door. And so that brotherhood and the, I guess the principle of community, almost different from the reality of community, was one of the things that we focused on from the very first day. And like you, I think priesthood, became an issue and a desire for me after having done some pastoral work. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with you. I I did Regency at Seattle Prep and definitely wanted after Regency to move more deeply into a sacramental relationship with people, especially with young people. So
0: my next question was going to be, how were you drawn to high school work? Because you have a pretty extensive resume in, in a number of different high schools with both teaching and leadership positions.
1: Yeah, high school is one of those things in my experience that I did not want at first. I remember (laughs) in the novitiate, I was sent to Gonzaga Prep for my long experiment, and that was an awful five, six months. It was just terrible. Terrible. I was used as kind of a permanent substitute. I never really got to know students. And so by the end of that, I was really scared of high school. I didn't want to go back to high school. And I, I was working to make my regency at the retreat house in Portland. And okay. then Father Bill Zelke went and left the society and kind of left me stranded, and so I was sent to Seattle Prep for Regency.
0: I knew and him I, well. I knew him yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. And I really had to trust. That was one of the most profound experiences of the valve obedience for me, and the trust that even though I didn't want to do something, that there were there were something there was something I was being called to do. And a, a real important figure at that point in my life was Father Tom Healy, who was the president at Seattle Prep. And mm who kept calling me when I was at Gonzaga, you know, finishing philosophy and getting ready for Regency, kept calling me and saying that he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And uh, that was a basis for a, a really wonderful uh, friendship. Father Tom Healy and I were very, very close until he died, you know, five or six years ago. Yeah. And um, I, I can remember from the very first day I walked into the class uh, in Regency, it was different from the novitiate. You know, I, there, there have been a few years that had passed. I was a little bit more mature, a little bit more confident in my life, both as a teacher, but I think more specifically as a Jesuit, as a religious in the world. And, and uh, that it was a great experience. It was a great th- three years and kind of cemented that that would be a career path for my own ministry in the society. So it was a real turnaround. And and I feel like um, now I'm reintegrating that desire to do spirituality ministry uh, both through exorcism, but all through, also through spiritual direction, into the rest of my life, and so um, nice. I, that's that's come full circle for me. So,
0: nice. I was uh, when I uh, came came time for me to be missioned after philosophy to my first uh, apostolate, and I, I wanted to go to the missions in Zambia because that's why I entered and I was told that I was too young it's kind of like you you know uh, we don't think you're ready you know go out and I wasn't I didn't ride a motorcycle but they did send me <laughs> to a high school <laughs> and, and I didn't want to I didn't want to go to the high school and I was a head of campus ministry at our uh, high school in Portland Oregon and also a full-time theology professor but you know this is the uh, how obedience works you know that experience became the focal point of the future ministry that i am now doing that would have never happened if i had resisted or left or said i'm not going to do what you want me to do so it's amazing how god works through the through the vow of obedience
1: oh i agree completely those are those are beautiful experiences that that change life and really confirm this this life for us it's great
0: yeah with the i'm sure you all i taught it at an all-boys school so there was that joke and for jesuits scholastics going to uh uh, high school is a, one of the teaching advices, first of all, was never smile till Christmas. And I, <laughs> I uh, didn't take that advice. And I regret that. You know what?
1: I, I heard that advice, too. And um, I think I learned after about a week in the classroom in Regency that the only way I was going to survive and thrive as a teacher w- was to be myself. Nice. You know? And myself is a, a joyful person. And nice. so uh, I, I didn't take that advice either, but I think it, it, it turned out great. And I did take that advice when I was a novice. I I think I was trying to be somebody I wasn't, and that's an essential difference between the two experiences.
0: Good point. Very good point. So you've had uh, a lot of experience in high school ministry. You've seen young adults over the last uh, 20 or so years uh, at the high school level. What do you see as the biggest challenges to their living the Catholic faith as young adults? And the experiences that make it difficult for them to stay in the church or to continue to be believers. Because, you know, when I work in parishes in the Seattle area, I go out there and you just don't see young people. They're kind right. of
1: gone. Right. Yeah, it's it's sad. And, and, you know, with the current pandemic and the way we're kind of locked down with masses, weekend masses, you know, the hope is that people will come back when once the pandemic kind of passes and stuff. I know my mom, who's 82, I mean, she's part of that generation who can't wait to go back to church. But I wonder about the 30s and the 20s and the, you know, somethings, and if they feel like, well, look, I haven't been to church in seven months, and I'm okay, so maybe I don't need it. That's a real profound question for us as a church.
0: Yeah, I spoke to one of the Jesuits from the Northwest region recently, and he said the pandemic has exposed the soft underbelly of faith, and he's in an area where there's Predominantly Hispanic, but also a lot of Anglo's. He says the Hispanics are a little more devout than the Anglo's, but not much. And he says, "I am wondering if the majority will just stay away, even when it's safe to come back."
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's a profound question, and I, I don't know that there's any way to answer it until we we reach that point in our history. Yeah, but it, it's
0: it also presents a great challenge to us as Jesuits too, because we know that uh, Jesus
1: Christ is the most interesting thing in the entire cosmos. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question, I, I think that young people today, they're products of their culture. And so I'll talk about this later when we talk a little bit about exorcism, too. But I think they're products of naturalism, you know, which is the belief that there is no supernatural realm. Right. And that everything can be explained by natural, uh, you know, reason. And also kind of scientific reductionism. That's uh, That's been our legacy in the West since the Enlightenment. And I think the those chickens are home to roost now, you know, in yep. some ways. Yep. they've laid um, eggs and they have taken over. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I mean, one of the things I like about what Bishop Barron says is uh, beauty, you know. And, and I think one of the reasons that I felt so at home in an English classroom, much more so than in a theology classroom, is because... I teach literature, especially, with a theological bent. Nice. You know, so uh, that's one thing, that, that we're products of our culture. I think the other thing, too, and this has to do with what we do with kids in high school and during that time in their lives, we give them, at least in my experience, we give them sometimes a really healthy sense of what the church can be, in terms of supportive community, in terms of supporting prayer and the growth in the spiritual life. But we don't give them a very good sense of what the church actually is out there in the parish life. And so there's such a disconnect when they leave a high school and go to college and all those other things that that tempt somebody in college. And then on top of it, having to live your faith and trying to find a community of faith that just doesn't exist the same way it did in high school. And so you know those those religious high schools, the Jesuit and the Catholic high schools are kind of rarefied environments. And I haven't figured that out exactly how to how to give them a sense of how how hard it is. But generations of my students, you know, have kept in touch with me and saying it's so much harder to live your faith outside of that, um, you know that that really supportive and close and intimate environment that we had in the high school.
0: If you could wave a wand and change one thing, in high school ministry, whether it was at a Jesuit school or a diocesan high school, what would be the one thing you would want to change in order to make the faith more dynamic? Would it be an administration change? Would it be a faculty change? Would it be some type of programmatic change? What would, If you could just do one thing, what would it be?
1: I would want to reconcile the very good emphasis on social justice that we have in our high school with a renewed sense of transcendence, a renewed sense of the cultic, a renewed sense of sacramentality, a renewed sense of the mystery of the church. I think those things need to be reconciled. And my my experience has been the pendulum has swung way overboard to the the social justice, which is good and a constitutive element of the church, but uh, of necessity, it's swung away from those other things, especially the transcendent.
0: I totally agree. I entered the Jesuits at a time when the formula after our 32nd general congregation, where the justice mission became a key issue. But the phrase was, the service of faith, of which the promotion of justice is a constituent element. So it was like trying to gain back into the practice of the faith, the focus on those who were most in need. And that was a very good balance. But as time went on, it became the service of faith of which the promotion of justice is a constituent element, and then it became the service of faith and justice, and then it became faith and justice, and then it became justice. Now it's yeah. just Now it's just service.
1: Exactly, and this is uh, one of my kind of overarching philosophies of the church these days: is that it's not, we are not just a political organization; we are a transcendent organization. Right. You know, and we we have to reflect the nature of God, not just the nature of humanity.
0: Them. Yes, exactly, exactly. And there's an a we're we're preparing people for an eternal life. And Absolutely. this this is this is a transitory experience and kind of our opportunity to get it right here for an eternal glory that's coming. Exactly. <laughs> so you've worked in both Jesuit and Diocesan high schools. You're currently at a Diocesan high school in Boise, Idaho. What drew you to work in a Diocesan high school over a Jesuit one at this point in your life?
1: That's a good question. I mean, the, the, there's an easy answer and then a difficult answer. I think to that question. The easy answer is the bishop of the diocese here. So he wrote our current provincial, Father Scott Santa Rosa, and um, there have been Jesuits here for a number of years serving in campus minister and campus ministry at Boise State and uh, Father Jack Benz, and um, Father Radmar Howe, and uh, now Father Montron, and we have a regent here, Kyle Baker. But that's been the only Jesuit minister in Boise. And the bishop, Bishop Peter Christensen, who has had experience of having a Jesuit as a spiritual director at some point in his life, wrote our provincial and said he'd like to have that offered to more of the diocesan clergy. And uh, I was in Los Angeles at the time, serving in campus ministry at USC. And I was not exactly happy. I, Los Angeles is not the the city for this Montana boy. <laughs> right. And
0: I like to Scott, say of Los Angeles, for all that sunshine, there's an awful lot of shadows.
1: There's an awful lot of shadow. Exactly right. And, and I, I mean that as an exorcist as well. But, <laughs> but Father Scott and I were talking and he said, look, would you like to do something different in voice, something other than campus ministry? And I said, yes, I would. And they've been Kind of aching for a priest to be a chaplain at their school, a true chaplain. Nice. And one of the things, you know, I'm in my middle, heading toward my late 50s. And at this point in my life, I, I just don't feel like I have the energy to teach seven classes a day. But the chaplaincy work brings together the very best of what I experienced as a superior at Gonzaga Prep, which was, you know, I can walk into anybody's meeting and be welcome in those conversations. And so that's one of the things. And I think the harder answer to the question is, what are we doing or how are we processing those places, those institutions where we've been serving for a long time? And I think one of the things we have to ask in our ongoing discernment is, what's the status of our mission at a place where we've been for a long time? One of my experiences is that folks who work at places where Jesuits have been assigned for a long time kind of take for granted that there will always be a Jesuit there. And I'm not sure that that's a promise we can make anymore for I a lot of different correct. reasons.
0: That's right.
1: And, um, you know, at, at the Diocesan School, uh, you know, I've been welcomed with open arms and, uh, in some ways more more deeply and more sincerely than I've been welcomed at Jesuit schools. And I don't mean to, to put anybody else down or any other institution down, because I think it's just the nature of what happens when you presume that commitment in a lot of different ways. And so those are a couple of the answers that have brought me to the diocese.
0: Good. Uh, Before moving on to our second and third part, where we get explicitly into your work as an exorcist, I'd like to ask just one more question. In terms of all of the time that you have committed to high school ministry, if you could identify kind of the most grace-filled event or experience that you've had working with high school ministry, what would it be?
1: Yeah, that's. um, I mean, there there are a number of graces. Uh, One of the things I was just talking about, we had a faculty staff retreat day on Friday, and I uh, was talking with a number of faculty and staff about, there are, in my experience, the same kinds of people who are drawn to this work in high school, it, whether it's teaching, and ministering, campus ministry, athletic stuff, or whatever it There They're the same types of people. And so, I work with some folks here at Bishop Kelly in Boise. They could also have worked at Bellarmine and Tacoma with me, or they could have worked you know, at the Jesuit High School in Sydney, Australia, when I was there for tertianship or okay. And especially with the kids, once a once a door closes in a classroom and I'm with a bunch of young people, they're absolutely the same. They were the same in you know the early 90s when I got to Seattle Prep for Regency as they are now. They ask the same questions. And they're even though they deny this, they are so searching for meaning and significance and purpose in their lives. And that is more than anything, more than they want an A, more than they want to win the football game on Friday night. They want purpose and meaning and significance in their life. And I think I'm old enough and I've been around the block enough times now that I see that when I look in their eyes. And that's what I'm ultimately about. It doesn't matter what my curriculum is in some ways, because ultimately I want them to to adopt the stance in the world that they have to make choices that support the meaning, the significance and the value of their life.
0: And that's maybe the great consolation is because we're made in the image and likeness of God, we are looking for that fullness of love. And we do have it to offer if we can just kind of uh, present it in a way that people can hear it. So yes, that's great. Exactly.
1: And yeah, I think the, the companion insight is a lot of people, especially young people ask, what does God want me to do? And that's a that's a very Jesuit question. What am, right. what am I gonna do for Christ? But the, the insight is that what I most deeply desire And the emphasis is on most, because it's hard to get to your deepest desire. But what I most deeply desire, I believe in principle, is the same thing that God desires for me, because that's the way I've been created. Exactly.
0: Thank you, Father Greg Vance. We're going to take a quick break here for Sacred Story Institute Jesuit podcast. We're going to come back for parts two and three and talk about Father Greg Vance's specific vocation now as an exorcist. Welcome back to Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. We've been interviewing Father Gregory D. Vance of the Society of Jesus. Father Vance is the only Jesuit I know who is a trained exorcist. And in part two, I asked him about his vocation as an exorcist, uh, what drew him to it, how he got permission, what options he had for training, what his training consisted of, where did it take place. What is the process of certification for someone who needs to work in the church as an exorcist? Where he is using his training as an exorcist? And he is one of three trained exorcists in the Diocese of Boise appointed by the bishop. And I wanted to know if he worked as a team or if they do one-on-one. So here is part two of my interview with Father Gregory D. Vance. Welcome back. We're with Father Greg Vance of the Society of Jesus, who is working in the Diocese of Boise, Idaho, at the high school there, the Catholic high school for the diocese, but he's also an exorcist. Father Greg, you are the only Jesuit exorcist I know. <laughs> are there others, and what drew you to this apostolate? What, was there an experience that happened that you said, I need to do this,
1: I want to do this for the Church? Father Bill, thanks. Thanks for that. And and uh, so I have three jobs in my ministry here. So I'm chaplain to the Diocesan High School here at Bishop Kelly. I also offer uh, spiritual direction to the clergy of the diocese. And I'm a working exorcist, as you said, that there are other Jesuit exorcists even in this, in this country, but not too many. One of the right. things that is so kind of touching about this community is that the tradition of Ignatius and spiritual discernment of spirits is revered among the exorcists. Wow. But a lot of exorcists who are working feel like the, the Jesuits have kind of given up the baby with the bathwater in terms of their own spiritual tradition. And I I, you know, I don't have a judgment on that myself, but that's the reputation. But there are a few of us Jesuit exorcists. and. How I came to the apostolate is everybody has a story. I I think I came through literature. One of my intellectual interests and also ministerial interests as I teach is the portrayal of the church and the portrayal of spirituality, especially in popular culture, media and movies and art and literature and all that stuff. And so I'm very, very interested in that. And so, you know, when I started uh, teaching you know Dante that's uh, that's certainly something that that becomes very clear or when kids ask about you know this or that contemporary movie you know that might have you know exorcism or exorcists in it there's there's a a series on Netflix now called Warrior Nun I don't know if you've heard of it
0: I did. I said it to some friends of mine in Portland, Oregon.
1: <laughs> and I thought it was entertaining, but I thought it was also silly, you know, in some ways silly, right. it was silly. So anyway, I kind of came around that way. Then I, I attended a, a summer conference while I was in Spokane at uh, Mundelein, Pope Leo Thirteenth Institute. And they had a summer conference for both lay folks and clergy on uh, spiritual warfare and exorcism. And from that, I, I found out that there was a, a two-year training program at the same institute. Oh. And uh, when I came back to Spokane after that summer conference, the the current or the then bishop, he called me and he, he had heard I'd gone to the conference and he said, I don't have anybody either, but I've got some questions and some of my priests have questions. And are, are you willing to put together a dossier on some folks who, who claim they're possessed? And uh, I didn't know what. To, and I said, I'll, I'll help in, wh- in whatever way I can, but I, I really don't know what I'm doing. So I kind of just uh, cast about in the, in the darkness for a little bit and then decided that if this was going to move into something more, uh, more long-term that I definitely needed to be trained. And, and
0: you had to seek permission for that from the bishop, or from, from the provincial uh, as well.
1: Yeah. From the provincial as well, but mostly because, you know, there's a monetary price also just because of, you know, uh, the, the unique nature of the training and the unique nature sure. of the ministry, certainly. But father Scott Santa Rosa, uh, he was great. Uh, I I think that his first kind of glance at my request to be trained as an exorcist was he didn't think it was a good idea, but he stayed faithful to his own prayer and his own discernment. And uh, this was um, three, four years ago now. And he came back and during one of our manifestations, he said, no, I just, I think this might be a good thing. So, so go ahead and, and do it. So I trained at the Pope Leo, the 13th Institute at Mundelein Seminary, north of Chicago, okay. for uh, two years. And we had two 10 day sessions each year.
0: On site at Mundelein?
1: On site. Correct. Yeah. Okay.
0: Did you have other options, Father Greg, for there, training? Yeah, there are. So, and since I started,
1: there have become... For those out there
0: who may be interested in seeking training.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So this, uh, the, the Mundelein course is only for, for clergy, but there were 40 some odd of us in our cohort, and they're from all over the world. We have Franciscans of the Renewal from Northern Ireland. We had a priest from Australia come over twice a year, and uh, it, it's a great group of folks, mostly... Uh, mostly diocesan, but some okay. Franciscans, and there was a Benedictine, who is is, a, is an exorcist as well. But there are other options, too. One is the Regina Apostolorum in Rome. I would have loved to have gone to Rome, but that's that an option for me. With A little given more the, expensive, convert. probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now there is a group in Denver called uh, Liber Christo, Run by Father Chad Ripperger, and he was a lecturer in our program early on. But then he uh, kind of split off to work in Denver with Liber Cristo, and that's for both clergy and for lay folks who okay. uh, comprise the the prayer teams.
0: Very good. Getting back to literature and culture, I've I always to, to give people a sense of hope. You know, even though culture, popular culture, can be so anti-Christian and anti-Catholic. I said, my hope is, is that if you have a devil movie, they said they always go to the Catholic Church.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I that says father, something. That says father something Tom about Healy the and intuition. I, A number of years ago, when we were both in Missoula, there was a, a, a show on uh, A&E called Paranormal State. And it was about a group of paranormal investigators out of Penn State. And they were so happy that they had such a diverse group. They had a, a Wiccan and they had Pagans right. and stuff. But what was so interesting is whenever they felt like they were really in danger, they called a Catholic. Their stated philosophy and their and their uh, operational philosophy were very, very different.
0: <laughs> yeah, I spent 12 years at Georgetown where the film The Exorcist was filmed, the first one. Right. I think the number, the third one as well. But what a lot of people don't know is that it was a young boy, actually, who was the person who was possessed. Correct. And they had gone, I believe, to the a Lutheran or Episcopal pastor initially, yep. and they, they realized yep. that they were dealing with something that they didn't know, and they had to give it over to the Catholic Church. Exactly.
1: He was a young boy in St. Louis, yeah.
0: You are one of three trained exorcists appointed by the Bishop of Boise. Do you work as a team or individually or both?
1: we work both individually and as a team. So one of the three of us ministers specifically to the Spanish-speaking community. He's uh, a priest from Mexico. And then the other two of us are, are Anglos. One uh, the other one lives uh, elsewhere in Idaho, but he comes to Boise. Boise's the biggest city in Idaho and also the state capital and so Okay. just just because of sheer numbers I think we probably get the most uh, amount of requests. But we both work on our own. I've worked on my own before, but we uh, will assist each other when we're doing the formal rites. So there's a distinction to be made between a minor exorcism and a major exorcism. There are lots of prayers of minor exorcism, actually even to be found in the liturgy. I mean, there's an exorcism in the baptismal liturgy. that Exactly. Right? And there are, are minor exorcistic prayers in the Mass and all over the liturgical life of the Church. But the formal rite is the one that was just revised in 98 or 99. That rite, you have to have a bishop's permission in order to enact that rite. It's one of the only sacramentals of the church that's reserved to the ordained.
0: Okay, yeah, and I like to point out to lay Catholics that uh, the process or the formula for the renewal of your baptismal vows at Easter time, you're doing doing two things— you are renouncing evil, and you're renouncing the glamour of evil, and you're renouncing all of evil's works, that you do that first. And the second thing you do is you affirm you believe in God the Father, and Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and the Church. So that is itself very powerful, saying there's two realities at work here, and two battles that uh, are going on between two different sources, and so we got to pay oh, attention yeah. to that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I, that the training, uh, in among many, many things I learned, but one of the things i learned is just how prevalent the language of spiritual warfare and the language of exorcism is in the liturgical life of our church
0: exactly exactly i've always enjoyed devil movies some people like you know thrillers the my two favorite ones in terms of getting back to culture here in film that present how evil works i like The one with Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves.
1: The Devil's Advocate. The
0: Devil's Advocate in terms of how evil manifests in terms of like a corporate environment. Powerful, powerful film. And the other one I saw about four or five summers ago called The Conjuring.
1: Did you see The Conjuring? I did. Yeah, and that's based on, uh, isn't that based on the, the experiences of Ed and Lorraine Warren?
0: Exactly. And I never heard of them. The movie, it was the only movie that ever scared me. I wow. have nev- wow. never been scared by The Exorcist or any of these other movies. This is the only one that got under my skin. So- I agree. I,
1: I love the devil's advocate. One of the things I loved about it is uh, that the end just starts the process all over again. Exactly. There's just a little, a little kind of prick of the ego that will start the down That's the Primrose right. path to, <laughs> to full possession, you know?
0: That's right.
1: The other one that, that I would that I sometimes recommend to people, although you have to be careful, is it's a movie called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. I've seen that, yes. And it is partially based on a true story of a French case, Annalise Michelle and the, the trial of two priests for negligent homicide in her death during, during an exorcism. One of the things that's fascinating to me is not so much the exorcism scenes, but the courtroom scenes. And trying to, to think about how would you argue in a courtroom setting, in a legal setting, for the reality of the non-physical realm.
0: We're talking with Father Greg Vance of the Society of Jesus about his work as an exorcist in the Diocese of Boise. We're going to come back for our third part of our interview and get into the specifics of what actually goes on when a priest performs an exorcism rite and the types of situations that call forth the expertise and the ministry of exorcists. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sacred Story Institute Jesuit podcast. This is Father William Watson of the Society of Jesus, president and founder of Sacred Story Institute. We are in our third part of our interview with Jesuit Gregory D. Vance, a trained exorcist. Last section, we spoke about his training and how he used it. And in this third section, we get into kind of the practical aspects of it, his perspective on evil Uh, Why does the church have exorcists? Didn't we solve all this problem with psychology and neuroscience? What are the varieties of situations that would need someone who is specialized in this specific ministry? I asked him what his perspective, where we are in the world regarding manifestations of the evil and the demonic, and if he's personally experienced uh, the face of evil in his work, And what is his greatest hope in the face of evil and the demonic in our world today? Part three of my interview with Father Gregory D. Vance. Welcome back. We're with Father Greg Vance of the Society of Jesus. We have talked about his high school career, many things that he has done, and his interest in becoming an exorcist and kind of what his training consisted of. Now in this third and last part of our conversation, we're gonna look at kind of what does an exorcist do, types of experiences that would call forth the, the expertise and the pastoral expertise of an exorcist. So Father Greg Vance, um, I'll start with this comment. I had sent this to you by email when you were asking questions about kind of, you know, what, we, what was I interested in interviewing you? And I said, I said, it was my experience and it kind of came to it over a long period of time. You know, it's that phrase antichrist in the scriptures, especially in John. Right. That possession is a continuum from mild addiction to full demonic possession, and that any place in the human spirit or soul that is not occupied uh, and where Christ and the Holy Spirit is home is occupied by its opposite. So I don't know if that made any sense or if you would agree so, but anyway, I'm going to lead off with that in terms of your understanding of how evil can reside within a being crafted in God's image and likeness, body and spirit. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. No, I I agree with that. And it fits with my own kind of philosophy that we are created as mind, body, and spirit. To say we're only mind is the Kantian mistake of, of the Enlightenment and for the
0: non-philosophers explain the, what Kantia does. Yeah,
1: I mean he said cogito ergo sum which is I, I think therefore I am and uh, he makes a a very close connection with his ability to reason and his existence. And I think that's reductionistic to to say that that's all we are. I mean I'm very um, sympathetic to Hamlet in uh, when he says to his friend Horatio there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy you can explain that just by our own human experience too. So like I sometimes tell the kids at mass, you know, it's not like I can, if I cut your little finger off, I haven't cut where your love out of your life. Right. Correct. And so we already believe in the non-physical and we see it through its effects. You know, we see that with faith as well. And I think we see evil that way too. We see it through its effects. So, I mean, I I would agree. And I think your philosophy is supported by the scriptures where Jesus says, you know, if you cast out an evil spirit and you don't fill that space, then the evil spirit, you know, goes and brings seven of his, of his friends back uh, because right. there's a there's a nice swept place to go live again.
0: Could be so seven, I, other, I, seven other philosophers.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, but I, I just think that we are a combination in this life of mind, body, and spirit. And so, if you tear in your ACL. That's a physical injury, and you need to see a doctor for that. But it also has psychological and spiritual implications for you. It's going to make you know, your belief in a loving God who um, is interested in your health a little bit more challenging. And it's also going to make you depressed psychologically. And so uh, if we're going to talk about wholeness and healing, to, to kind of cut the spiritual out is bifurcating the reality of how we've been created.
0: Yeah, in terms of healing, I oftentimes uh, use this example when I'm uh, giving a retreat or even in confession. I said at the, uh, the story of the gospel where the crippled is lowered down through the roof in this, and Jesus is there, and he looks around at his audience. He says, which is greater to tell this man to get up and walk or to say your sins are forgiven? Beautiful, yes. And he says, to show you that I have the power to forgive sin, I say to you, get up and walk. So the primacy is the healing of the soul, which basically has banished us from eternal life. And Jesus uses miraculous physical healings to show that he has the power over all of creation. Absolutely. Yes. So I have to ask this question because we're going to have skeptics out there. Haven't we solved all this devil stuff
1: with psychology and neuroscience? Great question. Great question. One of the most fascinating teachers that I had in my training is a deacon of the church, but he is also a retired clinical psychiatrist. And this is his specific area, is the relationship between emotional or psychological disturbance and true possession. So let me give you a couple answers that I learned from him. One is a scriptural answer. In Mark's gospel, I think chapter three, Jesus comes back to Nazareth, and the crowd gathers. Then his relatives show up, and they, they want to take him away because they say he's out of his mind. Mm-hmm. And in Mark's Gospel, the scribes and Pharisees come from Jerusalem, and they say he's possessed by Beelzebub. And so the Gospel writer knew the difference, or else he wouldn't have put both of those things in. He would have made a distinction between you know somebody being crazy and somebody being possessed by Beelzebul. Right. In Matthew's version of that same story, the family is taken out so it's almost like matthew saying it's easier to believe that jesus would be possessed than that he would be to believe that he was crazy (laughs) and so that's a scriptural answer i mean we have we have plenty of of evidence that even ancient people knew the difference between a mental problem and a spiritual problem now here's the scientific answer so the dsm-5 which is the diagnostic and statistical manual of uh, emotional and psychological disturbances has all sorts of symptoms and criteria in order to make a diagnosis for like paranoid schizophrenia or manic depressive disorder borderline personality disorder all that stuff and none of those symptoms are consistent with the four primary signs of possession and the four primary signs of possession are the ability to speak a language that one has never studied before especially a language associated with jesus so aramaic or uh, latin or greek um, that's one. The second is a uh, preternatural or abnormal strength. And you can you can explain some of this stuff scientifically too. adrenaline. I mean, there are there are sure. stories about people who are able to lift a car off, to, off, of, off of a loved one because uh, adrenaline is pumping through their system. The third is the knowledge of hidden things. So if if somebody knows my sins and says them out loud, uh, very specifically, they shouldn't have knowledge of that. That's a preternatural kind of phenomenon, and then the the last one is the aversion to things that are holy, and so you see this in movies when uh, somebody who's possessed like puts their finger in the holy water and it starts to boil, right. or when you know the host the the, the Eucharist is touched to the forehead of somebody or cross or crucifix a, or something like that. yeah and and it makes a it makes a burn mark on their on their head or something like that, and the, uh, you know that one I think is possible to be faked, but taken all together There isn't a scientific explanation. And then the third answer I'd I'd give to that is that it's common belief and practice that uh, somebody who's paranoid schizophrenic, their hallucinations are real to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And they don't know that they're actually hallucinating. Whereas and this has been borne out by my own personal experience. um, Somebody who's possessed actually knows that there's a foreign presence within them and has lucid moments where they're able to reflect on the presence that is you know threatening them and, and kind of taking over parts of their personality.
0: okay briefly so a, a summary then of the uh, of the four the four signs of authentic possession
1: yeah once again the the ability to speak a language that somebody's never studied before especially okay. associated with Jesus the abnormal or preternatural strength okay the knowledge of hidden things and the aversion to the sacred very good.
0: On the knowledge of hidden things, and I'm sure you've heard this story, I'm, I think it's authentic. Uh, Mother Mary Alacoque, who had the visions of the Sacred Heart, Right. a visitation sister whose spiritual director was Claude de la Colombiere. They're both saints now, St. Saint Margaret Mary Alacoque and St. Claude de la Colombiere. But she was considered the dumbest nun in the convent, and she was getting these visitations of Jesus and in, in, in calling for this devotion to the Sacred Heart. And the prioress brought in, Father Claude, to determine if she was deluded, crazy, or if she was possessed in some way. And so Father Claude gave her a homework assignment. He said, next time Jesus appears to you, I want you to ask him, what was the last sin I confessed? Oh, wow. And so he comes back a number of weeks later, and he said to Sister Margaret Mary Alcock, did, did the Lord appear to you? And she said, yes. And he said, sister, did you ask him the question that I asked you to ask him? And she said, yes, Father. And Father Claude says, well, what was his response? She said, Father, Jesus told me to tell you he forgot. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so oh, that's, wonderful. that's when he knew it was authentic because yeah. the devil would have pegged the sin if she was possessed.
1: Well, here's one of the beautiful things that it's it's kind of common practice in this ministry and, and one of the renewals of my own spirituality uh, since I've been doing it is I've been more faithful to regular confession exactly. because the, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, the, the evil spirits can't use against me a sin that's been forgiven and been, uh, yeah. you know, absolved. And uh, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, I will tell you one story. I know there's a question coming later, but in Los Angeles once I was testing somebody and uh, I have a little vial that says holy water on it. But I had not blessed the water. I just put tap water in it. And I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sprinkle water on this person to see if they react. Because if they react just because they think they should react, then then they're faking. So I sprinkled water on the person during the course of a minor exorcism. And the person looked at me and said, Father, if you bless that, it might be more effective. Interesting. there there is no way that that person should have known that I had not blessed that water because I was acting just as though it were were blessed. And that's the knowledge of hidden
0: things. Knowledge of hidden things. Very, very powerful. Very powerful. So since we're kind of on the topic already, what are the types of situations that would call forth your specialization in this specific ministry?
1: Yeah. So um, if somebody is appointed to be an exorcist, usually it means that the bishop trusts that person to make uh, a judgment in an individual case and not to have to come to the bishop every time. Can I do an exorcism or not? And so I've been appointed as a stable ministry. Kind of like
0: a first responder. Is this Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but we use what we call a medical model. And under the medical model, the parish priest actually is the primary care physician. And so the parish priest should have some facility in spiritual warfare and in minor exorcisms. And uh, the exorcist, then the trained exorcist, would be the specialist in that medical model. And so, uh, oftentimes, when people call the church, uh, they have tried everything themselves. And and I I've know I know of cases where folks have struggled and had a challenge and pain for years and years and years. And of course, when they call, they just want it to be over with, right? And uh, we, you know, at least in this country, the medical model doesn't go that way. And so. Yeah. The medical model says, no, we need to do some investigation. We need to, yeah, you need to do some prayer. You need to regularize your marriage. Life. I mean, all these things work together. That's one of the, the philosophies of mind, body, and spirit is, you know, if if you just want an exorcism and then you want to go back to uh, being a Satanist, then the exorcism is not going to work, <laughs> right? Sure, sure. There has to be a commitment from the, the person to work on his or her spiritual warfare issues as well. And, uh, and so... Here in Boise, that's at least a three-month process before the the person would get to see the exorcist. And usually it's six months, and uh, they call it a a prescription, a prescription of prayer. And uh, they work with our team that's mostly comprised of lay folks and then some medical professionals, a psychiatrist who would evaluate everybody too. So we, we try to make sure that the other things that can help are being utilized to help the person too
0: one of those prescriptions, Father Greg, would be a regular confession during that kind of prescriptive phase?
1: Absolutely. And and not only that, but a general confession. Okay. Uh, yeah. A general confession and not with the exorcist, but with some other priest, you know, Okay. and and preparing for a general confession to identify, you know, those areas of darkness and temptation that may have opened a doorway that have led to the present experience.
0: Okay. Let me. Let since we're in this pandemic, this is a very important kind of a side issue that I hadn't thought of until our discussion happened. What do people do in this extended period of time where they cannot receive sacramental reconciliation? How do they get sin forgiven if they can't get to a priest? Is there is there a like a sincere from the heart confession to God that that can take care of things, or or how what do people do?
1: I mean, I I don't think that there is a substitute for sacramental reconciliation. However, I think, you know, better than nothing is what we traditionally call a spiritual communion. right? And so one of the things I I routinely counsel people to do, especially if they can't come physically to Mass, is to read the readings for Mass and to connect. Those are the readings that have been chosen by the church. And one of the most powerful things, it's so Catholic, as in universal. That sure, every right. Catholic in the world is asked to reflect on that set of readings for this day or on that saint, on that saint's feast day or whatever it is. And so just to do that unites you with other good and holy people. And then if you make a what's called a spiritual communion, and you can look on the Internet for that prayer of spiritual communion, and if you can say it with your heart, that um, is much better than nothing. And, of course, the church teaches that if you can't go to confession, your resolution should be to go as soon as you can go. Very right. good. Very yeah. good. Yes, exactly.
0: I don't know if you are able to speak about specific cases, but maybe you can speak in in general either f- from things that you have worked on or people that you know have worked on. One or two situations that really were Evidence of possession that required kind of the full
1: exorcism. Right yeah, now. yeah. I mean, that's a, a a great question. I know that's uh, what a lot of your uh, listeners will want to hear about. I I hesitate to be too sensationalistic about stuff, but I also do want to say, in complete honesty, that I've witnessed things that I have no rational category to put them. You know, I, I just a couple of specifics. I once saw a person whose whites of their eyes went scarlet and it looked to me like they had broken every blood vessel in their eyes. Okay. Both of their eyes. You know, when, if you pop a blood vessel in your eye, you know that it takes, you know, days to go away. But sure. within, within five minutes that this person's eyes were clear again. Okay. That's, that, that is, it, that's something. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, there are no rational, ca- I, rational category for me to put that. I don't know how to understand that, but what I believe theologically about it. Is that the the evil spirit who was tormenting that person was also trying to derail me from what I was from what I was there to do, exactly. and I think those things are are you know I hate to use the word but it, uh, parlor tricks um, of the evil spirit in order to derail the truth from entering and the truth with capital T the way the truth and the life Jesus Christ from entering that person's life in a deeper way and casting out the evil spirit that's there.
0: Yes, yeah. I do, during all of this. Crazy uh, protests that were going on over the summertime. I did a short little video called Cancer Cancel Culture and the Demonic uh, because I saw a lot of this kind of mayhem on the streets yeah. where people had kind of surrendered themselves to what I call the Lord of Chaos. Yes, yes. Uh, instead cool. of the Prince of Peace. And I used a little section from the Exorcist film. It's toward the li- last part of the movie, but the, the wise, seasoned Exorcist is talking to the, the Jesuit psychiatrist. And the Jesuit psychiatrist says, so, you know, why this girl? What why is this happening? And he says, I you know, I think to make us feel that we are ugly and unlovable. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the way that evil works probably most commonly. People just get depressed, they don't think there's anything of value in their lives. And that's well,
1: that's that, that's the and main thing. That's a whole other kind of wing of reflection. There, there's a book that hasn't been translated into English yet, and I don't, I'm not my Italian's not that good, but it's a, a story of Folks who have been possessed and who have experienced liberation talking about what they've learned through the experience, which is valuable. I can't wait to to get the English copy of this. And most of what they say is that they are much more committed to the reality of their spiritual life and much more committed to growing their relationship with Jesus Christ. You know that's that's to be remembered as well is that uh, possession wouldn't happen unless God allowed it. God allows all these right. things, and so there's a purpose. Right. You know, and we're back to the Book purpose. of Job and stuff like that too. So
0: it's a choice. Yeah. Ignatius knew that you can you can give yourself over to the light or over to the darkness. Yeah, it's it's, exactly. it's a 24/7 conscious choice because the Holy Spirit's working all the time, but the yeah. enemy of human nature is ambitiously eager and does not give up. That goes exactly. back to the,
1: yeah, we had on Holy the- Thursday when I was down at USC, we had a Eucharistic procession outside the church and through part of the campus of USC. And it was beautiful, but it was also disconcerting because we had people growling and barking like dogs at us and hurling curses at us as we were walking with the Eucharist through part of USC's campus. So there there are things other than grace at work in the world. There's no re- question in my mind yeah. about this.
0: I remember, as you mentioned, that I remember video of benedict in germany in the early part of his papacy with with people on the streets that are they were dressed in the most kind of outlandishly evil way and doing things like that hissing and barking and doing totally obscene gestures and things like that
1: yep yep exactly i mean i I see the demonic in that i I definitely see the demonic. and yes i see anger and i see psychological problem too but but i also see the demonic and once again, because how can you how can you just excise the spiritual part of that and not use it as part of the explanation for what you're witnessing? Right? Exactly.
0: Yeah. In in the world right now, there's a lot of people who are thinking kind of like, you know, there's a lot of really strange things happening. And are we kind of at some inflection point in history? What is your perspective on where the world is regarding manifestations of evil, demonic, and how they most commonly reveal themselves today. Is there something more going on than there's been in the past, or how would you understand it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would be reluctant to make a judgment on more or less or anything like that. I, I have a book that uh, that was fascinating to me called um, Hungry Souls, and the thesis of the book is that some of the paranormal experiences that we might be having is a result of the the lack of the traditional prayer for those who are in purgatory that oh. God might may allow them to break that veil between life and death to reach out to us to remind us that uh, we have both an obligation and an opportunity to continue to have relationship even with those who passed on so there are differences in in the philosophy between you know disembodied spirits and poltergeists and ghosts and possession and demons and all those things are kind of separate categories. But I also, I, I think that some of the the most horrible things that people can do to one another, as well as some of the most beautiful things that people can do to one another are both done in the name of God in, in our history. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, you know, my, my hope is that I'm going to contribute to what I, you know, I'm going to contribute what I can to the betterment of the world. I've been reading, especially since last Sunday, we celebrated the 480th anniversary of the founding of the Jesuits. And uh, one of the most stirring um, pieces of Jesuit documentation is the very beginning of that formula of the Institute from 1540. And it starts, Who, whosoever wishes to serve as a soldier of Christ under the under the banner of the cross. And that, that has always encapsulated what I most deeply want to be, a soldier is somebody who gets shot at that's <laughs> a soldier right is, is somebody who's in the thick of the fight of the battle and and if you're under the banner you're you're going to get the most of it because the enemy wants to take the banner down so people don't know where to gather that's the, right. the army doesn't know where to gather and and that has always encapsulated my deepest desire and so i'm i'm okay if i get shot at every once in a while i mean and i've gotten winged a few times you know uh <laughs> But right. but at the same time, it's not going to stop me from my deepest belief, which is that uh, Jesus Christ has already won the victory through the Paschal mystery.
0: The the enemy wants to, one of his greatest tactics is to try to instill fear in
1: us so that we back away from the good that we're doing. Exactly, exactly. And and um, I also had the same person who, who told me about the, that I should bless the holy water also said to me that Jesus loves the fact that I'm a a very joyful priest nice and I, I love that you know I've prayed with that many many times and and uh, you know I mean uh, Pope Francis talks about joy you know C.S. Lewis had a great uh, treatise on joy and um, so I, I believe that and and for whatever reason one of the blessings and graces that God has given me in this ministry is not to be too afraid and I keep wondering when is <laughs> when it's gonna be my turn to be afraid but you know I, I've, I've awakened in the middle of the night and if I feel kind of oppressed You know, I'll say the St. Michael prayer or the Memorari, and, uh, you know, and it seems to to help me and to calm my spirit. So uh, that's that's all good news to me.
0: Going back to your comment on the uh, different types of things in terms of the poltergeist, I would recommend to people the you mentioned Ed and Lorraine Warren with regards to the story that was uh, put to film The Conjuring. Yes. Well, there is a book out on their ministry. It's called The Demonologist. And right. they make they make the distinction. They were the ones who pioneered the paranormal investigation with photography, heat and uh, heat and cold sensors.
1: Correct. And they were
0: the first they were the first responders for like the Amityville haunting. Correct. So the yep. diocese would call them in. But they make the distinction between a haunting and something that's demonic.
1: Yeah. And yeah.
0: they have some very, very good uh, case studies in there that, that show the people the distinction between the two, which is really worth exploring, because I know I did have a business friend of mine who early in his career, at a very pivotal point in his career, woke up, had a manifestation of a huge stagecoach with a black hand inviting him to get in, and he smelled rotting flesh.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And he said, immediately, he said, get out, get out. Yeah. And he said he was very proud of that. And I said, "What? when did that happen in your life? And he, he showed me this continuum of in terms of his business success, and it was right before his business took off. And he said, the demonic knew you were going to be successful and do good things and tried to derail you at a exactly. very, very critical exactly. point
1: the The technical term for the smell is called effluvia. Okay. And um, you know there are traditions in the lives of the saints of uh, you know smelling of flowers, especially after a saint has passed away. So sure. there is both demonic as well as heavenly effluvia. And so that's the technical term for that. I, I think another thing that might be helpful is kind of four levels of demonic activity that are traditionally talked about in this ministry. One is Uh, Demonic obsession when people are obsessed with the occult or people are obsessed with you know in 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 my age It was you know heavy metal music and some of that stuff that was associated in the early 80s and late 70s but um, Many people go through periods in their lives where they're obsessed with things of the darkness like Ouija boards and and the occult and things like that the next level is demonic oppression And the history of the saints are just full of examples of the saints, the holy ones being oppressed by the evil one, trying to attack them and, you know, ruin their faith. And then the the next level is infestation, demonic infestation, which has to do with a place rather than people. And a lot of people say that places where there have been violent death, concentration camps in Germany, Auschwitz is a a perfect example, or the Gettysburg battlefield here in the United States— are places that where the evil spirits kind of hang around because so much tragedy had uh, happened there, and then the last one is full possession. The other thing that I, I want to make sure that I say is, it is the wisdom that you uh, don't you can be in a state of grace and still be possessed. So that's a that's a very interesting distinction to think about too. That uh, you know possession has to do not with your soul because um, if Jesus Christ has won our salvation, then the devil can't touch our soul, right? But possession has to do with your body. So there are stories of those who are still in the state of grace. This Annalise Michelle is one of those people who are in the state of grace but still exhibit the signs, the primary signs of possession.
0: And that was the movie The Haunting of Emily Rose?
1: The Exorcism of Emily the Rose. The
0: Exorcism of Emily yes. Rose. Yes, okay. yes. Halloween is upon us. What are the do's and don'ts for people around Halloween?
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the things we have to remember is that the uh, the original motivation for Halloween is a Christian one. You exactly. I mean, you uh, you dressed up like a like a demon or a ghost so that the demons or the ghosts would confuse who they were going after. Interesting. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, but it's you know it's it's also associated with paganism and uh, harvest time and all those kinds of things. And I just think you know there's there's no way to live in this world without being affected by contrary voices. My best advice to folks is, uh, you know, if you're going to dress up and, you know, let your kids go out and uh, I mean, that, there's a controversy about whether or not that's uh, the right choice during the pandemic and stuff, too. Sure. But then you should probably be aware of your own faith. You know, we, the, the structures of authority are also important in the exorcism ministry, too. And so parents definitely have authority over their children and can pray over their children and pray that God protect them. You know, maybe it's better to dress up like uh, my little pony than it is to dress up like a ghost or a doll. I don't know. You know, I, but uh, I, I just think care needs to be taken with all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, if we find ourselves, you know, going too far, too far down a pathway, uh, we have a conscience for a reason. And uh, God has given us that little voice inside that says, whoa, whoa, okay, too dark, too dark. Too dark. And, uh, we, part of the journey of our spiritual growth is learning how to listen and trust that voice.
0: I remember uh, in one of the interview books with Peter Seewald and Benedict, I think it was before he was Pope, he was still a uh, cardinal and, and prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, but he made the point, and this goes back to your, one of your early comments with regards to uh, ministry to high school students in terms of true social engagement, but also an elevation of the the cultic mystery of the faith and the transcendent. Yeah. And he made this important point. He said, he said that the most sophisticated modern cultures and he said west germany and the united states where technology is kind of um, kind of worshiped he said those are the two parts of the world where manifestations of the demonic and witchcraft are growing the most quickly yeah. and his yeah. intuition was is that people had totally banished the idea of the transcendent but were still searching yeah. for if you
1: will the magic and the
0: power that they knew was a part of themselves intuitively and are searching for it in the wrong directions. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, to be completely honest, the church, especially the church in this country, hasn't hasn't helped with that. You know, the the sexual abuse crisis has given people another rational reason not to trust the church
0: Exactly.
1: Right? and right. its ministers. And so but uh, but we those of us who still believe that we have the truth of our salvation in this church. Have to work even harder to to let people into that and to, to you know to to beg people to trust that uh, that Jesus is the way the truth and the life.
0: If you were if you were the devil, what better way to get people Absolutely. to mistrust? Oh, yes, the the graced vehicle, of the Catholic Church, than by getting priests to abuse uh, children.
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it all makes sense in some it, in some twisted way, but it all makes sense in the graced way too. Exactly. Because this, you know, that experience of that betrayal can lead one to the traditional images of the church, like the communion of saints and uh, the the surrounding uh, of angels and our guardian angels and and all those things, the rosary. And I mean, I've rediscovered a lot of that stuff through this ministry, a lot of those things that are so helpful for our faith. The sacramentals,
0: we call them, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, this has been a really rich discussion. I could go on for another two hours, I think. (laughs) I want to thank thank you, Father Greg Vance of the Society of Jesus. And since we ended on this hopeful note of the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, would you grace our audience with a prayer of protection and hope for the future?
1: Of course. I I now say after every mass that I celebrate or attend the St. Michael prayer, which used to be a tradition in our church has kind of fallen away, but written by Pope Leo XIII. And so, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. May Almighty God bless us and keep us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Amen. Father Greg Vance, thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful.
1: Father Bill, this has been a pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Thank you for having me.
0: This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.